What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Smalley Talk Podcast. This is your host, Josh Shrinko. Um, Christian is on vacation right now on Lake Huron. Uh, he took the the jet up there and um, hopefully slaying some big smallmouth. So I thought I would undermine his, um, his contribution to this podcast and start doing a bunch of interesting interviews he's always wanted to do. And one of them is uh, a guy that uh, for a lot of you will need no introduction. Um, he's, uh, you know, pretty well known in the uh, smallmouth community and also kind of the kayak smallmouth community, none other than Jeff Little. What's up, Jeff? Hey, Josh. How's it going, man? Good, man. Uh, we were kind of chit-chatting before we started the recording, and I was, you know, had to get it out there that I was, uh, you know, a little starstruck, uh, kind of fanboying a little bit over you. And, uh, you know, um, I'm not, I'm, I'm man enough to admit that, that I could have a, you know, crush on another man. So, and those long locks you got there uh, kind of just increase everything. So, uh, yes. but the the COVID hair that, that <laughs> at some point, you know, it's a decision to not cut it. Okay. Well, I had a COVID mustache <laughs> and a, like an 80s uh, haircut. It was terrible. So as soon as I could get back in the barber, I was, I was getting it all. So uh, I can't pull off the, the man ponytail like you can. So right. <laughs> uh uh, but yeah, man, uh, you're, you know, uh, you go way back. Um, well, actually, you and I go way back. Like, I've actually never met you in person somehow. I don't know how we've never crossed paths, but um, you were, like, extremely helpful to me uh, back in the day when I kind of was really getting into it. I was, uh, you know, consuming your content that you had out there. I remember you had DVDs out, what it was, the, the bluegrass... Uh, or was a, well, well, my business is Blue Ridge Kayak Fishing. Blue Ridge and, Kayak and Fishing, And that yeah. started back in 2001, 2002. And basically, Blue Ridge Kayak Fishing LLC was set up as, as my company for the guide service slash um, kayak fishing classes that I, that I taught in the Mid-Atlantic region. And, and you know, for it was about 10 years. Um, and I did those, those in-person, you know, classes, um, with the basis being an American canoe association certification as a, as a paddling instructor, I got whitewater, um, <clears throat> paddling it. Well, instructor certification, and on that framework from the ACA American canoe association, I built, a a more in-depth kayak fishing curriculum that included things like um, pattern development is is probably the most important one to teach a an angler how to how to recognize um, <clears throat> develop and exploit patterns which is a combination of location and presentation that you you mean to replicate that that you know if I could get someone to 
to make those observation about location and presentation and go and replicate them, they were going to be a more successful angler moving forward. Um, but I taught things like stealth approaches. Um, I taught them forge assessment, really understanding what, you know, what options the fish have, any fish in any fishery uh, to eat. What are they looking to eat? Where are they looking for it? You know, where, where are you going to find more of that crayfish, halgermite, mad tom, darter, and, and sometimes the oddball, like last year was a cicada year. And man, oh, yeah. Yeah, was, it was wild. Top yeah. water was, was awesome. Um, maintaining boat position was part of my curriculum. Um, and then there was all of the different paddling skills, you know, being being proficient with the paddle in navigating whitewater in a way that you're, you know, you're going to be safe, but you're also going to be effective to get to where you need to be to catch the fish. So I did that in person. And, and mm -hmm. you could say, yeah, I was a kayak fishing guide. Yeah, me putting you on fish was secondary to me giving you the skill set such that you're a better angler on subsequent trips. And I did that on the weekend, you know, from I would start in April and I would go through October. And then the winter months were mine. They were they were special. That was my own, you know, I love winter river smallmouth fishing and and I get to be a little bit more selfish with those fisheries. And uh, you know, I I I got to the end of doing that uh, because my main job, I, I have a degree in dietetics, which is basically human nutrition from the University of Maryland. And I worked in healthcare food service for 21 years before working um, for Torquedo, uh, manufacturer of electric outboards. Um, but the first 10 years, I was at one nursing home uh, close to D.C., then I moved to one, you know, I, I left there and, and took a job uh, closer to where I live now. And it was a it was a hostile takeover that involved um, like I moved in as as the manager and there was restraining orders and me wrestling a knife away from a, a cook that <laughs> I recently fired. And we don't like was, that. It was ugly. It was a bunch of. Um, Honestly, it was a bunch of Baltimore trash in that kitchen and I had to get rid of it. And with that situation, I couldn't be a kayak fishing paddling instructor guide, whatever you want to call it. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't continue with um, the weekend side gig of, of this fun thing that I did, you know, for, for 10 years. It ended. It ended because, you know, on <laughs> I think I'd already had this trip on the books and it was someone who who was actually from um, somewhere out your way. I think he was he was in Illinois or Indiana. Anyway, yeah. he, he was he worked on Capitol Hill and he was in town and he was in D.C. and he had planned to stay that weekend to, to book a trip with me. And I was heading down to the Rappahannock to meet him in my in the night nurse at the nursing home called and said, Hey Jeff, 
your uh, your kitchen's dark, and I know your your morning cook usually gets in at about five fifteen, and it was six thirty. I'm like, uh oh, uh, no call, no show. Yeah, so I had to turn around and and go back and cook for 130 people, like in a triage cooking sort of situation. So that was the end of my guiding because I had to, you know, it was just this the 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 situation with that particular facility that it needed all of me all the time. Yeah, and um, but I I was it, it was a blessing in the weirdest sort of way. I I still wanted to teach all of the things that I'd learned and continue to learn. Like I, I like figuring things out and then going right into turn around and teach someone else through video. And it, and that's the point at which it pushed me to doing videos and doing the DVDs. Um, because I knew that, that kayak fishing was, was growing in these kayak fishing skills. And the, the first DVD was, um, and if you want to watch it, it's on my YouTube channel, which is called The Little Stuff. But if you just put the words in River Kayak Fishing Skills DVD, River Kayak Fishing Skills DVD, that was the first video I ever made. And I wasn't tech savvy. I wasn't good with the, I wasn't the, the kid in high school that was in the AV club. And I just, I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that, hey, I have content to teach. And, and I can't do it in person anymore. I was furious about it, but yeah, still wanted to, to, you know, to, to get the word out there and teach these skills. And, uh, sorry, I'm going to teach a video camera and, and didn't really know anything about video production or editing or anything else. And I got a Macintosh. I got a nice big iMac. Actually took the proceeds from a book I wrote in 2007 on kayak fishing. That's don't even ask; it's out of print. Um, <laughs> it, you know, I took the, the money from that and turned it into that iMac and a subscription to something that, that the Apple Store doesn't do anymore. But it was it was called One to One, and you could go there once a week for one hour. And the year subscription was 99 bucks. And I think there was only two weeks that first year that I missed. So I had oh, over wow. 50 hours of, of, of one-on-one video editing instruction that, uh, <laughs> for a hundred bucks, like yeah. I've never, I've never had money so well spent. Like it's the best money I've ever spent is that one-to-one. So I learned how to edit video. And uh, produced that DVD and, and did two others. Uh, I did a summer river smallmouth patterns DVD, a fall. And the winter one, I think I took like two or three years to get that one right. So the first I've seen year, all of them. So. I did three of them. I did three, like boom, boom, boom. And then I got to winter. And it was, it was two... Fall is really good, but winter, like I got through a winter and I'm like, Mm-mm, it's not good enough. And I went through another winter. I'm like, still not good enough. After the third winter, I'm like, yeah, I got the right content to teach this. And and yes, it, it talks about hypothermia prevention and mediation. It talks about, you know, all sorts of different things from hair jigs to suspending jerk baits to the little tubes that I used to to make for, for um, 
it was a bait company I started with a friend called Confidence Baits, which I'm no longer mm-hmm. part of. But whatever, it's a lot of what you need to know to catch river smallmouth if you're you're blessed enough to have a uh, river that doesn't freeze over in winter. And uh, we're right yeah. on the edge of that. Yeah. Yeah, we get the same thing. Some years it'll freeze over, some years it won't. It really just depends on how cold it is. It hasn't really been freezing over the last probably two or three years. So we've been, you gotta love global warming. Uh, yeah. that's, that's the silver lining there. We got a, we got open water most of the year. So, and, and there were parts of that DVD that I talk about, uh, some tactics to, to sort of overcome what ice, ice is in a lot of places, mm-hmm. spring influences, um, yeah. early in the winter, the tail race below a, a dam. It just takes longer for a, in, in this example, it was Juan Brute and I used the example of Raystown uh, in the upper Juniata. You know, if you get a cold snap and the Susquehanna's freezing up, or even most of the Juniata's getting slushy, um, you get up near where that tail race of Raised, Raystown Lake is and you're going to have an extra three weeks of open water because the lake water doesn't get as cold as quick as the, as the river water does. Mm-hmm. So that, and then warm water discharges, which are, are pretty much disappearing because there's so much, um, and, and it's just enforcement of, of thermal pollution, which thermal pollution is, is a bad thing for our fisheries overall because you get you get the fish that and this used to always happen on Bruner Island on the Susquehanna where you know the the river would be low or lowish for winter and that band of 80 degree water would push way out into the middle of the river and those fish would have the metabolism that was chugging along for 80 degrees they're eating they're moving around and then you have you know a a big snow melt up above and it and it wipes out all that warm water like a squeegee <laughs> and replaces it with 33 degree slushy chunky stuff and they go into thermal shock and and you lose a lot of fish because of that so mm. yeah warm water discharges if you can find them even the ones that aren't true warm water like we have a couple um we have a couple discharges down where the river that I fish and they're like wastewater treatment and it's not, it's not warm water per se, but when, when it's, you know, dealing with 33, 34 degree water, that water is like 50, 52. Yeah. It's and, warm water. So yeah. I, I think what I've heard is that the, the regulation is you're not allowed to raise it more than 10 degrees. If you're, mm-hmm. if they check to, to, to determine whether, you know, whether it's in, and a lot of them went away with the, you know, we're, we don't have as many coal fire, coal burning power plants. A lot of them switch over to natural gas, but right. you know, if <clears throat> it's 10 degrees is the, is the criteria for, is this thermal pollution in, yeah, if you're going from 30, 34 to 44, yeah, you're not going to have that thermal shock of those fish or at least it it, it will, won't be something that, that kills them so right yeah you definitely can help you catch a fish though um well i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of rein us in a little bit on 
you know, we touched a little bit on your background. So right now, currently your, your, uh, what's your official position with Torquedo right now? Sales manager. Okay. Now, so I wear a lot of hats. <laughs> okay. With Torquedo. Um, the, the marketing that I do and, and I just, it, it's, uh, it's funny. I'm not, you know, I'm not in marketing, but I do a lot of content production that helps drive the demand for our products from the bottom up. Yeah. You could have fooled me. <laughs> well, uh, I've seen a lot, a lot of torpedo comment or content come. come yeah. Out. I mean, I mean you gotta educate the consumer of what, you know, what it is and why, you know, why it's the best out there. Um, and Tor- Torquedo is a European company, correct? Yeah, they're out of um, near Munich, Germany. Okay. So yeah. it's it's two guys that uh, they got an electric only lake there called Lake Starnberg. And there are two guys that worked for um, Gardenia, like gardening supplies, like, like spray nozzles and whatever, gardening supplies. They worked for Gardenia and they, they would go boating on this electric only lake and they were like yeah we don't you know we're not happy with the options for for electric propulsion that are out there we don't have enough power we think we can do better they did they went into their garage and sort of you know got some rare earth magnets and redesigned an engine and figured out a way to to you know make something that they're really just hauling ass around the lake and everyone's going what where'd you get that <laughs> what, what is that well we we didn't get it anywhere. We made it. There's these two guys that were zipping around. Everyone's like, can you make another and another and another? And it became Torquedo. And yeah. it was actually Chad Hoover that ran into the one of those two guys when Chad was stationed over in Germany. And Chad, I think, saw it as a as a means to um, to get disabled veterans kayak fishing. But that's, that's how Torquedo came to the U S he was like, yeah, we got, I got fellow veterans, you know, that are, that are missing limbs that through heroes in the water, we can get them. We we can get those guys out of their, you know, their VA hospital and get them on the water and that'll do a world of good for them. So, and that's, I don't know. I don't think a whole lot of people know that, but that's why it's why Torquedo is in kayak fishing. I remember, you know, back when, you know, any kind of motors were banned unless you had some kind of exception, you know, and, and it was, uh, you know, if you had a disability and, you know, needed something like that, um, which is, you know, looking at it, this, I think a lot of people listen to this, kayak, this podcast are kayak guys, but I think we have a, an equal amount of, that don't fish out of kayaks at all, just kind of small mouth guys. But if you, if you aren't familiar with it, you know, the, the kayak fishing industry, I would say over the last 20 years has basically come from nothing to, I don't know what the market cap on the industry is, but it's, it's fairly large at this point. Um, you know, there's, you know, major tournament trails. There's, um, you know, probably what, you know, 10 like really big manufacturers, um, making actual kayaks now and, you know, a bunch, a bunch of smaller ones. Um, and it's uh it's come a long way and it's crazy how the electric electric motors um pretty much if you fish any sort of competitive trail you know besides the Hobie trail which does not allow electric motors currently um everybody has one and some people have two 
which is <laughs> and, and they do they they use it you know torquedo actually has a, a marketing partnership with hobie even though they don't allow the motors in competition they fully understand that people use it in in pre-fishing and it's a mm -hmm. huge advantage to cover all that distance but go ahead yeah no it's 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 an interesting kind of dynamic and um you know you're kind of on the forefront of the motor thing um you know it's it's a uh, it's, it's funny a, though there's there was a lot of people that when they saw me in the motor saw it as a betrayal of who i was in the sport because i'm the i'm 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 the paddling instructor how right. are you doing a motor and i was slow to come to it really i mean chad hammered away at me and he was like just you, you got to try it like just take mine and i'm and i and i waved him off i'm like no no i got i got my paddle like i'm really good in white water and everywhere i need to get i can get with the paddle and uh you know it, it's it was something that that I was resistant to. I'm like, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. I'm teaching people paddling skills, and then I put a motor on. Like that just doesn't click. And and other people saw that early on, but the reason <laughs> it came down to, I went down and filmed with him for his show, and I went down to Virginia Beach, which he was stationed down there, and um, I you know I stayed at his house and the next morning I woke up and went out to my to my vehicle and there was a wilderness systems commander 120 already strapped with the motor on top of my vehicle I'm like what is this he's like you're not leaving without this I'm like okay man he's like you know you're going to have this for 2 months cuz I'm I'm doing whatever he was going to do with the navy he was like I'm going to be gone for 2 months and you're going to use this at least once I'm like okay and I did and it's fun. I mean, I covered, I think I went out on Lock Raven Reservoir with it. And I think I had it on the Monocacy River here in Maryland. And, and it, it, it started to kind of sink in. Like I just covered distances that, that I can do with my paddle, but would I, would I normally, I mean, I've covered, you know, I've, I've paddled and fished 18 miles on the Juniata one day. Um, do That's I do that lot. every time? <laughs> Yeah. No, and and more than that, when I got into fishing striped bass on the on the Chesapeake, then you really need distances because you're out there with binoculars chasing birds, and it's just like the vastness of that body of water. Or even when you go up into the Great Lakes, the vastness of going from from reef to reef is just immense, and and it's a disadvantage to not have some kind of motor. In, you know, I, I realized on the river that I was able to, instead of always relying on a float trip, relying on another person who's going to bail at, at 5.30 a.m., you're going to get that tech, oh, I can't because of whatever. I don't even want to hear it. I just, I just hear that, like, I can't do the float trip with my buddy that I want to do. I hate that. And, and that's you're dead I, to me if you ever do that to me. Pretty much. Way, so. Pretty much. <laughs> And, but I, but I stopped relying on, I stopped always needing a float trip partner. Yeah. Because, yeah. I, and you know, I'm getting ready to go down to ICAST. Like I've been getting my gear ready and packing and, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to hit water on the way down or on the way back somewhere where I will pick a river, put in sight unseen, 
and have five hours to put in and I'm going to go up three or four miles and just do a little flint trip coming back. And sometimes I do big ones. Like I did one on the Flint River and I caught my first shoal bass, I think last summer. And I think it covered like 16 or 17 miles up and back. You know, yeah, that's super I do cool. it regularly. Like it's, it's, you know, the combination of a motor and an inflatable kayak, which only draws two and a half inches of water is, is like you go where you want to go. Yeah. It's definitely neat. Um, it's even like, I, I've kind of get under the jet boat game here recently and I've had three jet boats now and I got, I think the one that I, I want to keep for a long time. And, uh, it's like, as much as people are like, Oh, jet boats are so cool. Like you can't, it, it probably, uh, doubles the water, if not triples the water that you can get to from a smallmouth river perspective in a kayak compared to a jet boat. It's just, they're crazy. Like that's really, to me, that's what drew me to them is just because we have a lot of smaller to medium sized rivers here. Like we don't, obviously we don't have anything like the Susquehanna, but we don't really even have anything like the Juniata, to be honest. Like that's like in Indiana, that's like, that's big water. Um, and really like, there's like, I can put my, my jet boat on three rivers here. Like that's it. Like the rest of them, I have to have something like that. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. I I fish a lot of small water, you know, and I I love small rivers. I really Mm -hmm. enjoy it. Especially, you know, go down when I go South in, and fish with my buddy Tim Perkins and we get in the smallest stuff and I'm like yeah you can only do this in a kayak but say say you can get you know a jet in a certain body water I actually did it with uh uh Denver McClure do you know who he is yep feel free guy yep yeah I show yep. up at uh at at uh feel free to drop off a boat after we did some testing and uh mm-hmm. he's like Jeff Little what are you doing like dropping dropping off a boat. He's like, "Well, there's the boat. What are you doing now?" I'm like, "I don't know, Denver. What are we doing?" He's like, "We're gonna catch musky." And he's like, "Just just drive your your F one fifty in the warehouse. Just leave it there. Grab a drink. Get in the truck. We're going." And and we went and we and I think it was what the Upper French Broad. And we, you know, he's like, "We, we gotta we gotta." brief window where it's still up enough. Then we get in, in the section that's that has a bunch of them and we jumped over log jams and stuff and coming just to get up there. You know, he'd be like, I need you to run as soon as we hit this log jam, run from (laughs) the back of the boat to the front of the boat to like seesaw it over. And then I'm a gun it and we can get up there. And, and I'm like, all right, I'm in. He's like, don't you fall in the front? I'm like, okay, I won't. But, but like you said, the water's dropping He's like, don't worry about it. Like, we'll we'll get back down. I'm like, that makes no sense at all. He's like, it's always easier coming back down than it is going up. I'm like, okay, I guess it's the current and speed and whatever. We did some crazy stuff in his jet boat in that small water, right? Yeah. My question is, when you're running a bigger boat like that, and then you could say it's a smaller oh, it's a small jet. I can do this and that. I get that. But even even my inflatable kayak with the with the three horsepower electric outboard that i get up to six and a half close to seven mile an hour um 
it spooks it it shuts down a pool when i move into it at, at that speed how does yeah. how do you deal with that in a jet boat that you're that you, you've sent a huge wake on the whole thing and everything is kind of freaked out because that doesn't happen very often and when it does it's like what in the world is just a sonic boom went off and they're freaked out they're not thinking about eating they're thinking about survival yeah i think it really just depends on you know when you run up and then drift back down and it's a drift back down that you catch them See, I don't typically do that. So in a jet boat, I'm doing more um, spot fishing than anything. So I will tell you, like a, a place where a jet boat is just like you can't, like an, where it's like I would never take a kayak out is winter time. Um, so like we have the ability to go from winter pool to winter pool to winter pool and go 35 mile an hour, you know, nine, 10 miles down the river. 20 miles yep. down the river. Yep. It's a, it's a game changer from that perspective because you can just, there's no limitations as like what area you're in. Um, as far as, you know, disturbance, um, I think it's a couple things. I, I usually work my way up river more with the big motor and shut it down and then use a trail motor to get up to the spot I'm fishing. So I'm really careful because it does, you know, it, it uh, you know, leaves, mud on the bank. I mean, if you're creating mud on the bank, you know that it's disturbing the fish. Um, so I think it's, but a lot of guys don't realize that. I mean, it's like anything else. Like if you've read Tim Holschlag's books, um, he had excellent (laughs) stuff, but one I've read his like stream smallmouth book like 10 times. And likewise, yeah. The one thing I took from that, like that I tell myself over and over again is like stealth. Yes. And, it's like, so I've learned that over the years of like, you may not spook all the fish, but guess what? You're going to spook the biggest fish. Yeah. And if you are trying to catch big fish, like you just, you really have to be careful about And like I said, it depends on the time of year. If you go in the springtime when it's, you know, muddy and ripping, it doesn't matter. Um, but if well, it's right like. Now on the Susquehanna, it's really tough. And my buddy, Jake, he actually texted me. He's like, man, I'm blowing them all up. Like I just, I, I, I can't get in front of big fish without them seeing me first. And yeah, don't all... give away the secret to that because I'm getting ready to go fish in a couple of weeks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What I told him in, in, in last Friday I was up there and I sight, sight fished a 20 and a half. Uh, it was, I think it was 411. Um, which is a good weight for a, for a oh, yeah. smallmouth. That's a good weight. Um, I saw him before he saw me. And a lot of it is, is drifting silently without moving yourself. It's, it's forfeiting the, the power fishing, like constant barrage of just fan casting in all directions constantly. Stop, stop that. Um, if the river's up, and it's muddy and it's, and I say it's noisy. Like there's a lot of current. Yeah, you can do that. And and I think that's Jake's, his MO, like, and, and it works most of the time, but when it's low and yeah. clear, that doesn't yeah. work. Well, that I tell you, work. we've talked a lot about this on this podcast. Um, but I think this is where ha- having a lot of small flows that I'm forced to fish, like my favorite, my home river 
it's called Sugar Creek. And I don't know if you've ever heard of it or been here, but it's like, it's the best smallmouth river in the state. Like it is like, there's no, really no argument for that. Um, and it's like the upstream portion you could, you know, damn near jump across, you know, the, the regular portion is probably, you know, at its widest, like maybe 50, 75 yards wide. Like it's, it's really small, but it's got a really good population of smallmouth and it's a healthy population. There's a, um, a 20, one 20 inch, uh, limit a day, like is they special regulation on it. And, uh, I've had to learn like, and it gets, you can't even float a kayak on it after the end of June. Like you, it's just not viable. So I'm waiting and I'm out there on, on my, on feet. And if there's one, by the way, but go ahead. What's that? It sounds like a challenge to me, by the way, but go ahead. Yeah. I mean, well, you can float it, but it's, it's a nightmare. Like you're dragging over it's rocks. It's a nightmare in a rolled and molded kayak. Oh, that is true. That is, you're right. True. I need, and, and I know that the, the inflatable that I'm in now, the inflatable kayak, it's two and an eighth inch is, is where I start to touch bottom. Well, if I get two and a quarter inch, I'm going through. Go ahead. Proceed. No, the, the, uh, the inflatable thing, we'll talk about that here in a sec. Uh, but, uh, I will say this, like even in an inflatable and if you were able to float it, it's, you're still traveling the noise and the, the disturbance is traveling downstream to the fish. Yep. So working upstream is, I've just learned that just like you have to do it that way. And I had a, it was a big kayak tournament last year. It's usually about a hundred guys or so fish it here in Indiana. And, uh, I've always done well. I've, my worst place is fourth. I've, I've done, I've never won it. I've placed second, like five times. It's, it's a, it's kind of a running joke for everyone. They make fun of me cause I can't win it. Um, but last year was one of those times where I always try to find some kind of little like hack that year, like, because there's so many guys and it's not a huge river. And last year it was low and clear. And I'm like, you know what? I'm waiting the whole time. And it's, it's a waitable river, but it's, it's not a waitable river. Like you really should float it. But I waited upstream and pulled my kayak behind me and, uh, I ended up getting a second again, <laughs> but I, I was able, I noticed when I was pre-fishing, I was spooking big fish. Like, yeah. I, I mean, and it wasn't even me hitting anything. I just didn't see the fish. Like I was fishing in front of me, but by the time I got up to them, I would see, whoo, you know, you'd see them run yep. out from underneath the boulder. And I, if you go upstream it, uh, you don't run into that. And if, especially if you're making long casts upstream, if you're making long casts upstream and you have the current flowing behind you, um, you're, you're basically like camouflaging yourself. Um, and that's, you know, it's a, it's a valuable lesson. I think working upstream, even in a kayak that when you're, I mean, fish upstream as you're working, when it's low and clear, that can be pretty a good, um, fish fish have their eyeballs on the side of their head, right? They're not exactly on the side. They're kind of angled a little bit forward, whereas humans have eyeballs on the front of our skull. And it gives us a lot of three-dimensional, like, you know, vision out in front of us, whereas, whereas, and we have a big blind spot on the backside of our head. Mm-hmm. Fish do not have that big of a blind spot on the back of their head, but they have some, what are the, 
a blind spot and it is immediately downstream from them usually when they're you know they're facing upstream just chilling uh and they have a smaller pie wedge of three-dimensional uh vision that's that's just right in front of them it's usually like you know it's it's where two eyeballs two vision you know 180s cross that you get three 3d vision um they don't have as much of it as we do but they they also don't have as much of a blind spot behind them but they do have a blind spot behind them and and it's it's downstream for a river fish and so that that goes you know with what you were saying well and it's not even too like actually the fish actually seeing you is one thing but here's the thing if you're working downstream one you're spooking all the rough fish too so if you spook all the carp and the suckers and stuff that are you know 20 yards upstream and they swim down and that you know the smallmouth just knows something's up you know and you're kicking up any all that sediment you may be kicking up or you hit something what i was telling jake in a you know, back and forth text message, whatever, earlier today, and he was frustrated. And I was trying to walk him through, like, Jake, put the rod down for 36 minutes. I have to give him a really specific number so that he'll set a timer. And and I mean that, you know, you've seen, you've, you know, oh, I just blew him up. I just spooked him. I just, you know, I drifted down. Oh, he ran from there. Okay, cool. You've identified a place where a big fish wants to be. Yeah, go back to it. (laughs) No, don't go back to it. Put the rod down, anchor up, power pull down, whatever you do, wedge on a rock, eat a sandwich, drink a water, and just keep looking. Yeah. Just watch these fish. And I, I did it in a, in, in a section of the river. It was funny. I was talking with Russell Johnson last week, and, and he asked me about somewhere. He's like, can you get there from here? And I'm like, he's like, you've been on every inch of this river. I'm like, and I had to think about it. I'm like, nah. It put me on a, down a rabbit hole of like looking at Google Maps, and I actually found a section of the Susquehanna. I'm like, I've never been on that side of that island. Whatever. I did that and I found a pot of big fish in a section that I'd never been on. And I sat there and I watched them for an hour. I didn't make a cast. I watched those small ones because I moved up and there's a little creek trickling in and they like that cool water, that creek coming out. I mean, it was, I mean, it was tiny, but they like, even in the bright sunlight, it's a hot river. It's a low river. And they pull right up in and just bathe in that <clears throat> cool, probably spring-influenced water. It had to be spring-influenced because I saw a muskie just down from there. And the muskie like the, the cool water from the spring-influenced creeks. Anyways, what I observed in the hour or so that I just sat there and drank water and ate a sandwich and, and occasionally looked at my Facebook feed or whatever, I just didn't fish. I watched fish running their circuit they run laps oh yeah i've seen that there was one smallmouth that was about eh, 18 and a half maybe 18 and three quarter he was on his way to 19 but he wasn't 19 and he followed the same big probably 28 i mean real big channel cat he was tailing the channel cat 
they do the same thing with the carp. They will they will follow smallmouth will hang back from the carp and and just that's their eating strategy. Yeah, the big clumsy carp. And in this case, it was yeah. a catfish. I hadn't seen that before. I've seen it with carp, but not with catfish. They follow them around, waiting for them to like bump into something, and and yeah, something, some morsel of food scurries out, and they eat it. That yeah, was that's... My, that fish's strategy. I watched another set of three uh, running. I say running laps. I, they would disappear, and I think most people in that moment, when they spook them off, they're like, "Oh." I, I blew it. I blew up the spot. Uh, they've left. I've spooked them. They're gone. End of story. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. It's the beginning. Anchor up. Watch them. Look at them. They will come back. It's probably going to take about eight minutes. They will come back. Eight minutes while you're fishing feels like it's about eight hours, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it leads you to 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 catching a bunch of 18, 19, 20, 20 and a half, whatever, smallmouth. I don't know, man. I honestly, I think that was the gift of my 10 years of guiding somebody and, and trying to get them to dead stick a, a Zoom super fluke. <laughs> you know, you watch enough fish because I don't want to cast on them. I don't want my I don't want to catch the 20 inch smallmouth. I want my client to catch it. So my rod was down. I think that was part of the gift that I got in in that experience. And it's not that I wouldn't fish with them. I would. But it was only to to demonstrate or to figure out today's pattern. Anyways, they come back and you watch their um, their body language. And when you watch their body language, you figure out which one's the alpha, which one's the, and it's usually not the one that's, that's in the front. <laughs> it's funny. It's like the alpha, the biggest one, the most dominant fish have scouts has like, you know, bird dogs out there running around. It, like yeah, they're not stupid. Only like, only like, and that's why when you cast on a school of like, you know, three or four big fish in a pod, you, you don't catch the 20, whatever you catch the 17 and a half. <laughs> yeah oh i yeah i know dude they're and especially when it's, if it's clear enough like what you're talking about where you can see them like those fish are they're at risk i mean an osprey or something could swoop down and grab them so, and they know that they've been around long enough they right. know that like they don't want to expose themselves and that's why you, a lot of times it's hard to even sight fish for those fish because they'll be tucked away somewhere like kind of protected well, and if they're moving you see them. It gets tough when they stop moving. Yeah. When it when you stumble upon them and you're like, "Oh my God, the the seat in my kayak creaked, and I was only twelve fish away or twelve feet away from that fish when I spooked him." Um. Yeah. You're you're you know he wasn't traveling, and there are times in the day where they move right. and they're they're doing their own milk run of certain places. I'm gonna come back to that though because there are places if you sit there and you watch an area that has them, a pool, an end of the pool, head of the pool, uh, the the deeper part where there's there's some, you know, deep boulder boils and boulder shade in the deepest part of the pool, whatever it is where you're seeing them. If you watch them, you will learn their, you'll learn their milk run. You'll learn the, the side of the rock that they, that they go around every time. You'll learn you know, if they they come across this bedrock crease and they turn right at where that log is hung up on the ledge trench or whatever it is, like you just you you learn the path. 
you start to learn their eat place. You start to learn the place where they, they come up onto it, you watch their body language, and they're like, they're expecting to find food. There's something yeah. with the body language. And I, and I can sit here and tell you how they position or whatever. They're all a little bit different. I mean, they all have their own personality. But but the the act of putting down the rod and watching a pool that has a bunch of big fish will teach you so much. Don't fish for them. Like give yourself, and I, I you know, I gave Jake 36 minutes or whatever. <laughs> like, Stop casting. You know why you're spooking fish? Because you, you never put down the rod. Like you never slide from power fishing into finesse. And part of finesse that works so well in, in low clear conditions is that you're not moving. I mean, I've been standing up in my inflatable and drifted Josh directly over a fish. I'm like, he sees me, but I'm, I'm standing there like a statue and I, and I don't move. I want to cast at him in the worst way, but I don't. And I, and I drift out that pool, but I know where he positioned and I'm gathering information of, okay, he went from, the base of this little grass patch in this four foot section. And he moved right up to, to that corner of the ledge ledge rock. Okay. So there are two, those are two places that if I just drift through here motionless and then turn around and, and lift my motor and paddle up and get to where I can just barely reach that with a, a, you know, Z-Man jerk shed with the, you know, the little net head hook or whatever it is and just launch it in there and, and dead stick it. One of those two places are eat places or places where I think, yeah, he'll stumble upon it. And in the whole, that's some high level stuff right there, bud. Well, (laughs) the, the, the whole dead stick thing and most people won't do it. I mean, people, people who know how to winter fish can do it. Um, and, yeah, and don't move fishing, it. Uh, yeah, don't move it. So I think a lot of people just don't understand that it looks more realistic if you're not moving it because the motion that we put into it, unless it's full speed, unless it's burned, unless it's that jackhammer, unless it's that crankbait deflecting off the bottom, eh, that medium sort of retrieve doesn't look all that realistic to them. But when it's sitting still, there's a whole lot of things that are that are you know actually you know protein containing morsels out there that are just trying to not be noticed. They're sitting still. The sculpin, the the helgramite, the crayfish, the mad tom. Until you agitate it, and then they move. But but you know most of the time they have some sort of subtle little tell like the tail wiggling or fin twitching, but they don't, but, but they're not changing. They're constantly Positions, moving, but, yeah. but never changing the position they're in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, overworking a lure when it's, I mean, I'm guilty of it. I, I would love to sit here and be like, Oh yeah, I got that down. I mean, I think everybody wants, you know, it's like something in your brain. It's like, I, I need to entice this bite, mm-hmm. but a good lure does that by itself like if you're fishing something that has a lot of um even like you know as simple as like a trd like a a net rig if you just watch you know mushroom head jig on the bottom floating up like it has these subtle little you know these it does these like little 
vibrations and you know back in the day before they had soft plastics that would float like that yeah it was a lot harder to get those motions but nowadays i mean they put those intricate little tentacles on things and and they stand up straight like you used to not be able to do that and now uh it's a you really don't have to do things and i i did watch your dead sicking video the other day and it's a that's it's hard to do, but throwing in a spot and waiting on the fish to come back to it, it does a that's like very powerful because if when the fish comes back to the lure and something's there that wasn't there before, they like know it and yeah. they're like, oh, that was not there before, and they immediately notice it. And you don't have to, you know, whereas like if you throw in there and you swim it by them, I, I, a lot of smallmouth, like not small ones, but big ones. They're like, yeah, this this isn't this yeah. isn't this, I mean, something's yeah. wrong here. Yeah. yeah, and and if you catch them in the right mood, sometimes they'll eat. But when they come back and something's there and it's like dying or it's just like sitting there, that's more like natural um, so, for them to see. And and you know, I think I've learned a lot about what does look natural and how important that that dead stick presentation can be um, by you know, putting the scuba mask on in the snorkel and going face down into a riffle. And you also learn where, what parts of the river hold more food for them. And right now it's whitewater and grass beds on the Susquehanna River. <laughs> grass beds are full of, full of food and whitewater is the absolute pinnacle of, okay, I need to eat something. Where do I go? It's all there. Okay. You move, you move, 30 or 40 feet down from the whitewater. And it's, it's, uh, I don't want to say it's devoid of life, but it, you have to really look for it. When you're in the whitewater yourself with the scuba mask and the snorkel and you're digging around there, like it's, you're, <laughs> you're just another, you know, I don't know. Like you're just another, like the snow globe that I was talking about before. You're in a snow globe that just got shook up and all the little, the snowflakes are just like halgrimites and darters and sculpins and, and crayfish and everything. Like there's just so much food swirling around there. And yes, you big human is in there like disturbing it all and kicking it all up, but it's there. You do that 40 feet downstream from there, you don't see it. You might see one or two, as opposed to you're in the whitewater. Phew, it's it's a wash with food. Yeah, and this time of year, yeah. that's when yeah, it's, it's a wash with smallmouth thinking, you know, hanging out with you, saying thank you. <laughs> yeah, they're eating everything you're kicking yeah. up. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's a uh, you know the the fast water thing. It, in a kayak, it is harder to fish. You know, especially if you're in true like kind of whitewater. And we were talking about the new river before and there's some, you know, there, there's class fives on the new river, but, um, you know, even like a class two, it's hard to, it's hard to like hold position, um, in a kayak. Sometimes it, I've gotten creative with some of the stuff uh, You're way better at that than me, but you know, if you don't have a motor, there's ways you can do it to kind of, you know, hold position. And especially if you have a rudder, you can, you can really like use the current to your favor. Yeah. Um, without having to throw a 10 pound anchor down. Right. Um, but if you do get those 
are able to dissect those areas this time of year, they're, you know, if you're patient enough, there's fish. I don't, it's hard sometimes that water for me, I get a lot of smaller fish in those areas sometimes. Like I almost feel like the, now it depends on what time of day it is and what day it well, is. And early stuff. in the day, the white water has big fish. Yeah. Like the morning I feel like produces yep. in those areas. Um, but yeah, I get like during the middle of the day, you'll catch fish in there all day. It's just, I, you just don't get like the quality that, because uh, they, they don't bother. Those bigger fish usually don't bother to expand the energy, uh, unless it's like a really easy time to grab a bite. <laughs> mm-hmm. like yeah. they, do, they do things that are easy and there's low light conditions in the whitewater, which in order to go there and to be there, they're expending energy. They're fighting current. It has yep. to be worth their while. It has to be easy. It has to be, okay, I'm going to move in, you know, eat a crayfish off this side of this one. I'm going to come around that corner, you know, on that big boulder pour over, and there's going to be some darters, and I'm going to be going at full speed, 20-inch smallmouth speed with my mouth open, and I'm going to eat five or six of the – like, you just – and and again – you know, if if you do the same thing I was talking about earlier, where you hang out at a, a low head dam or a big ledge system or whatever early in the day and in, in where you've seen those blow ups, hang out there and watch. You know, it's the same kind of thing. And you'll learn the eat spots. You'll learn the spots where, hey, if I put a, you know, uh, a diesel minnow there repeatedly, eventually there's going to be a smallmouth that's going to come cruising along and say, I'll eat that. Yeah. You know? It's definitely, it's weird. I was explaining to my wife about fishing and I'm like, it's, it's a lot of it. Like, you know, you're, you seem like a really cerebral guy, Jeff. Like you, you're very like detailed and organized. I'm probably not so much (laughs) that, uh, that organized, but fishing, no matter who it is, it's, it's a, you can't open a book and like, while you're out there and be like, Oh, chapter three, point two i'm gonna do this here it's like it's a lot of it's instinctual like it's like a collection of past experiences and i like myself when i I can sit here and talk about it afterwards a lot of times when i'm out in the water i don't even know why i'm casting there it's like this something in my brain that's like i've caught fish here before and i've caught big fish here before and there's a reason i'm casting here instead of left five feet right five feet and uh there's really no replacement for that other than just being on the water. So there's, there's understanding things on a cerebral level. There's a, Hey, the smallmouth should be here because of this and this and this. And, um, and then there's the, what you talked about where you're like, I don't know why I'm casting here, but I believe it. And, Mm -hmm. And you only earn that with time on the water. You earn that instinct. Now, you know, I've tried, I mean, I, the whole point of my my kayak fishing classes and the book I wrote in the, the DVDs and now my whole YouTube channel, which I forget how many different videos have smallmouth on them in the smallmouth playlist. It's huge. I have over 800 videos on the on the Little Stuff YouTube channel, but it's all, all predicated on I'd want to make you a better angler, right? Well... Nothing in my, nothing, absolutely nothing on my, um, my YouTube channel 
can give you that instinct. What I try to do is to, to break it down into, into steps, into lessons that will get you to try things that I know work for me, that get you enough success that you experience the success and it accumulates in your experience file. It accumulates in your, just because the, the, I gave you the mechanics and the reason why, right? You have to actually yeah. go out there and, and do it. Now, the whole tournament fishing thing to me is, and, and I don't do them regularly. I really, I actually, it was actually Jed Plunkert who, who kind of roped me into to doing tournaments because he's like, dude, you, you would crush it. And I'm like, yeah, I just, not my thing. He's like, now nah, you got to do it. And eventually he got me, he's like, you know what, do it for me because I need you as my tournament partner in the River Bassin series. And we did. We had oh, that. I remember that huge smallmouth you caught. Well, I, I remember I, huge smallmouth. That was wild. It was, it was my personal best smallmouth I caught in a tournament. It was six pound, ten ounce Susquehanna River, and 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 the, you know those fish are exceedingly rare. But whatever, what happened that day is, and it was 2015, and and I think we we repeated again in 20 2016. And I'd done a couple tournaments with him before. And just didn't enjoy the experience. Like it was, it was like when I fish, I'm out there. Usually, if I'm fishing with someone, you know, if I'm fishing myself, I'm just having fun, trying to learn something new. If I'm fishing with someone, I'm either trying to learn something from them or to teach them something. I'm never out there. Instead of my trying to, you know, prove that I'm the better angler, I want to make you a better angler. Like that's the joy in me, and that's the guiding part of it. Yeah, but it's a, your. It's probably just part of your personality. It is, yeah. but he was he. Jed understood that about me, and he he needed me to perform. And I think in the first tournament, I think I was leading. It was a kayak anglers one on the Susquehanna. I was leading midday, and he watched me spin out. He watched me go from first to fourth and he's like you stop doing what you do and i think he recognized that that somehow that anxiety or whatever it was um created the mental noise that drowned out the voices of instinct that said mm -hmm. that just that you just listen to okay cast on this side of the rock or whatever yeah. it is that, that, that I have that, you know, that time on the water that it just would have. So what he told me <laughs> going into the river bass when he's like, I do not want you looking at the leaderboard. Yeah. I just need you to pretend like it's a normal day of fishing and, uh, and just forget about it. And, and yeah, log your fish, but don't look at the leaderboard and just, just go fishing, man. And, and, and he understood that that allows the, the, the instinct to just flow. And if you have too much um, conscious narrative going on yeah. as you're fishing, uh, you're, you're drowning out your, your instinct, but it maybe you're, you're so new at it. You have no instinct because, because you don't, you don't just have it. You, you earn it by years and years on the water. 
Yeah, but I, I, but I try to give shortcuts, and in the shortcuts that I'm that I've been talking about in this podcast is to put the rod down when it's low and clear in the summer and watch fish because you. Well, it's be it's not a volume water. game this time of year. It's just not. I mean, it's not a volume like you're not you're not casting your way to winning a tournament. Like you're, it's placement. It's not how many casts you can make. Yeah. Um, because I think a lot of guys have trouble differentiating that. Like they wanna. They want to fish like, you know, and I, you know, the whole power fishing thing versus finesse is funny because a lot of people think that is like what lure you're fishing with. I don't even necessarily think that. I don't think it's really the lure. I think it's just like how you're using it, you know, you're just not trying to cover this broad area and hope for a bite. You're, you know, identifying a high percentage place before you make the cast. Yeah, you got to know those eat spots. (laughs) Yeah, and it's it's a different though because in the springtime you don't need to do that. The springtime is like float ten miles and make a billion casts, you right. know. And there are certain places where you're like, hey, you know, like a fish will pre-spawn fish will stack up in these areas or whatever. But you're not picking off individual fish like you are um, right now. It's I like I like lone clear. That's I'm actually really excited to go out there, and I'll probably throw up a big pooper um, going out there, but. Like this is my style of fishing. This is what I do. This is when I this is when I catch the most twenties. Is when it's low and clear, and yeah. I can almost like like sneak up on them and catch them. Um, I don't do as well when it's like because uh, I don't know. I feel like that really narrows down the people that can catch fish. Um, whereas like springtime, you know, you can you can be you can be an ignorant angler and hook two 18s in a day. And you know, it's not any big deal. Uh, but this time of year, it's a lot harder to catch those fish. Yeah. They're, um, they're spread out and they're, they're grouped in, uh, in groups of like three to four, maybe five big fish in an area with a whole lot of nothing in between. And as soon as you catch one of those, the other four or three or whatever are freaked out and, unless you can cast on them right away, which I don't think it's legal in the thing to clip one and then cast after them. That's the only way you're going to get them. Yeah. Oh, for sure. The whole thing settle down. You have to let the whole pool reset. And that takes 20 minutes, half hour. Yeah. And I'm not good at that either. That's, (laughs) that's, that's like I said, that's next level stuff. But waiting that long, I just have, and, and that's where tournament fishing to me is see, I cut my losses in this, in a tournament. Like I will not sit on a spot for 30 minutes. Cause you think about it, you know, you have eight hours fish tournament. That's one sixteenth of your day. It you depends, know? man. I will tell you that the, the, uh, day that in a, the river bass and the first one that, that Jed and I did together, um, we got a hundred and, 23.75 inches on six fish. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. All of my fish that mattered were in one spot that I could park my F-150 in side by side. You know, two F-150s could, could park right there. I fished some other spots in the area, but I kept coming back to that. And I would tell you that I spent 80% of my day there because it Hmm. kept reloading. 
it was not low and i mean it was it was early october and it was the first rise that we had had in a long time like in months and it was there were a lot of people that skunked because they can't handle that volume of high muddy water and it was just it was a massive eat spot it was it was a place that kept reloading that you could release fish into and they would be freaked out and it didn't matter because everything else was tripping over itself because it was like thank god we finally got some water and everything stirred up and we're just eating and this is a place there's so much food and 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 i guarantee you that that six pound ten ounce river smallmouth two days prior was probably a mid fives <laughs> Dude, that thing was a freak, dude. It was it was about ready to explode. Yeah, it's on. Like, you can, if your if your viewers are curious, if they find Jeff Little on Facebook, it's it's one of the profile pics, and it <laughs> if if you click on it, you look at it close. It's got a really funky, distended abdomen that's so full of food, but it actually had a scar. Uh, back by the anal fin, which caused it to grow in a funny way. And you can't really tell because the way I'm holding it, my fingers are kind of there. So it doesn't, it, it kind of covers up that that fish had almost like a, um, like an indentation, like an apostrophe, like this big round body. And then this tail that kind of hooks up into, you got to really look at the picture. It was a freaky looking like old. I've, lo- I've looked at it many a times. Uh, it's a, it was a weird, deformed, but beast of a fish. Dude, yeah, it's one of the biggest river smallmouth. I, we've caught some absolute giants up in uh, Minnesota, like upper Mississippi River. Like just, you know, you get those fish that are just like, they have that extra layer of like muscle sure. or fat yeah. on their shoulders. Yeah. The Susquehanna is like one of the few places I've been where that's, the, almost all the fish are like that. They kind of have that big bodied, you know. They do, uh, but it's it's funny. Like I was on the the Holston River down in Tennessee earlier this year, and I was catching, you know, eighteens um, and nineteens that had the same size mouth as our Susquehanna sixteens. And to me, it clicked. Like, hmm, we're further south. These fish got these are younger fish. These are yep. fish whose bodies haven't caught up with their 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 skeletal frame like their 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 oh, yeah. raw bone right like they've yep. you know they're they got to that size in many fewer years than our pennsylvania fish <laughs> oh 100 percent, dude it's it's the mouth mouth the body size if you, the further north you go the the further apart that gets and yep. there's like if you go up like way up you start getting into like like where we go in minnesota those i i'll tell you off air some stuff because I, I would never name drop some of these places uh but there's some where that's like like it's like like next 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 level where for whatever reason these fish are just like freaks and yeah. they're like small areas you know you go into and you're like oh wow i can literally tell where this fish came from by looking at it um but they're, they're fun. That's why I like going north, man. They're there's I think they're just so much more fun to catch. Like those smallmouth are just crazy. Uh, they're just they're awesome, and they fight hard. 
you know, a lot of those rivers like the Susquehanna has a lot of current in it and they know how to use that to their advantage. Yep. Um, that's why they're different from Lake Smallmouth. Lake Smallmouth are big and fat, but they're lazy. Yeah. And they're like, they're like a, like a sumo wrestler. They got a lot of bulk, but you know, they're not very agile. The river Smallmouth up North, they're like big and muscular, but they're like super athletic. It's like the, this combination of that just like you got your 21, 22 inch fish northern smallmouth and it'll change your life. Like yeah. it's just crazy. But yeah. Yeah. It's fun. And then you get them gorging like that one you caught and it's man, it's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, let's shift a little bit here. I think we're get we're, uh, we're coming up over an hour. So I wanted to talk a little bit about kayak, uh, world. We we've touched on, we've mentioned the inflatable thing and I, it's funny. I, you, you asked me if I had an inflatable when I was texting you the other day. And it's like, like I, I'm like, uh, on the same wavelength here. Cause I, I started seeing, uh, like I said, I got, we got the river rafts. Which all of our audience is familiar with the rafts that we have. We've fished with them for two seasons now. And, uh, the power of inflatables is, uh, I feel like the momentum's building in in the in the fishing community that people are starting to catch on of like the, all the cool benefits of like portability and all these things are great, but you're Here's, also getting some crazy on the water benefits, and I want you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so. it's the biggest thing for me. It's is there there are two things. Um, shallow draft is the most apparent. When you get an inflatable kayak and you're used to a roto-molded kayak, you will, you know, one of the maintaining boat position techniques that I taught my students when I did the 10 years as a, you know, teaching people was, was wedging. You wedge it on a, a log, a, a gravel bar, um, a ledge rock, whatever. I was, I found myself in the inflatable kayak thinking, okay, I want to fish the top side of this, this, you know, this ledge, right. Or the grass bed that's up there. I need to get myself stopped. So, cause I'm, I'm in swift current and I'm just going to run up onto this, whatever it was, gravel bar. And I it with speed to hit yeah. it hard enough to like stick and be go right over the top. Of- again, again and again. <laughs> I'm like, that didn't work. Like yeah. missed it. And I'd look back at it and I'd turn around and come back and do it again. I'm like, no, I'm just like, it's, it's, I'm, this doesn't work anymore. Right. But then, then I throw an anchor and the anchor holds it easy. Easy. Right. The anchors work better or whatever. So it, it clicked there the first time. And, and, you know, I started with a, um, one that was, that's distributed by NRS. It's the star rival fish. And that is the first video that's on my inflatable kayak playlist on the, on the little stuff YouTube channel. And I go through how you set it up in terms of gluing the, the Yak attack switch pads on it and taking the GT 175 track so that you can, you can rig the torpedo and and put the foot control steering if you want to do depth finder whatever you know rod holders whatever you want to rig that's the big barrier that's the thing that you know i mean 
the big barrier for people not getting them is that they, they think they're pool toys and they think they oh, think they'll pop hey, which you is, near that you're yeah. going down no dude the, i will tell you i had the most the probably the most catastrophic thing that you could have happen um with an inflatable kayak i was i was actually filming mike iconelli on his little pond in his backyard for a torquedo marketing video we had just rigged up his Hobie Pro Angler 12 with the, the three horsepower Torquedo. And I'm just filming him, right? And, and he caught some fish and, and I'm, you know, get the underwater camera going and, and whatever. And he, gust of wind comes and he's got like a wind knot and he's picking out a backlash. And the, and the, the whole braided line hooks on a rod that's behind him. It hooks onto like a glide bait behind him. And I'm like, and I kind of drift over. I'm like, let me get that for you. And he turns around. He's like, oh, no, Jeff, I got it. And he bumps the throttle of the Torquedo with his elbow in reverse at full speed. And it runs into the side of my inflatable kayak and puts two eight-inch gashes on the of the outer chamber. So that NRS or the the star rival fish has three chambers. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, my God, uh, are you okay? I'm like. Yeah, I got to just go over here and fix this. And he's like, did I do that? I'm like, yeah, it's cool. Uh, he's like, are you going down? I'm like, no, I'll be okay. But I got to go take care of this. And I went to the, you know, I took it to the, you know, to the shore, hopped up on this, you know, one of his neighbor's bulkhead and pulled it out of the water, got the water drain out of it. And because I carried a K-Pump Mini, it's just like a little, it almost looks like, um, you know, two of the 22 ounce beers stacked together. It's a, it's a hand pump about that big, right. Uh, that, that you can pump air back in, but I had to fix the patch and I carried the stuff that NRS carries. Uh, it's, it's called tear aid type B. And I, and I used my braided line scissors and cut out two strips and put it on there and slapped it on there. And it's, it, um, it's good enough to get you through the rest of the day. Right. Yeah. And I pumped it back up and I finished filming. He's like, you're good to go. I'm like, he's like, you were, you know, leaning a little bit to one side. And I'm like, yeah, I just, I still had the two chambers. He's like, well, you got all three now. Are you, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, let's finish filming. So carrying, I mean, it's sort of like if you do mountain biking, right. And you go out on the single track somewhere and you have a blood of the tire. What do you have? You, you, you got to pump with you. Yeah. Like you have to. You got to have a patch kit. You got to have a spare yeah. and a tube or patch kit or something. So inflatable kayaks is no different. Um, well, and you can't really repair a, a rotomolded kayak on the water. That's that's one of the differences. Yeah. You know, you end up putting a hole. I had a, my brother put a hole in his new canoe in the middle of the new river on a three-day float. And uh, we had to use a camp stove and it was not pretty. No, <laughs> so, not. so, you know, once you get past that, you know, the, the advantage of shallow draft, which is such a huge deal. I actually filmed an episode with, um, another YouTuber, um, Juan Chacon, his, his YouTube channel is uh, senior bass fishing, right? He does all, it's all Spanish speaking. And he was up in Maryland and he wanted to, um, he wanted to catch a snakehead. Not, I was able to put him on, I think an eight, eight and a half pounder and then a 12, 
12 pound, five ounce snakehead, but we got into an area and he, he was coming up and I think he, he works with vibe kayaks and, and I'm like, I can take you to a spot, but you, you, he's like, well, I'm not bringing kayaks anyways. I'm like, you're, I'm going to put you in a different brand kayak. It's going to be an inflatable. He's like, yeah, I've talked to him before about that and they're cool with it. And I'm like, all right. So I had two of the, the innovative sportsman Osprey 1436, which I had some hand in, in the design of, of the, the hull, but Trey, who's, who's one of my Torquedo dealers, he, he designs the frame. So you have, you have fully riggable frame along at least eight, eight feet on both sides. And then across the front, you can put a depth finder and you put the Torquedo on the back, whatever. He puts the frame and the seating on there. We had, I have one that's mine and I borrowed his to be able to, you know, to get it out there and, and to take one. And we went up into some Eastern shore tidal river. And I don't think he understood it until we, we got up there at high tide and it was, you know, two, three feet everywhere. We're coming out and the, the bottom had dropped out and we're, and we're leaving and it's got, it's got three inches of water everywhere. <laughs> And he's looking at me and he takes his paddle and jabs it into like this big flat. That's like, I don't know. It's, it's a half mile or three quarters of a mile long and three inches of water. And he puts it in there and it's just mud that, that, that it goes in. He's like, man, the, a rotomolded molded kayak, a regular kayak isn't getting out of here until the next high tide. I say, exactly. He's like, and we couldn't even walk out of here. I'm like, no, you'd be in, you'd be in kneecap deep mud. He's like, now I get it. And it's the same thing on the Susquehanna River, that low clear condition that allows you to, to, to get through without getting out of the boat constantly. In that tidal, you know, that tidal river, you couldn't get out. But on the Susquehanna, yeah, it's a hard bottom, and you can you can walk, you know, walk through there, but. The advantage of shallow draft is huge. The other part, and we talked a lot about stealth already. <laughs> yeah, banging off stuff. Yeah, stealth, but it's not just banging off stuff. I think in it, in it, it clicked for me. I was actually filming Corey Dreyer is one of one of the, he's a one of our team torpedo anglers. I was filming him on Lake Murray, South Carolina, this spring. Right. I'm tailing him with a video camera in my hand, just filming him doing his pre-fishing thing. He showed me, you know, the, um, he uses the Garmin live scope or pan optics or whatever. And, and like catches a fish on a brush pie. I mean, it's a really cool video. You ought to check it out. But, but he moved into an area and kept moving and I'm following him. I'm like, you know, 30 yards behind him, just the right distance to be able to film him when he hooks up. And uh, more than once in the, just that first morning, and I'm like, Corey, yo, you turn, bud. Like, you missed something that you got to look at. And he'd come back, and I'm like, at the base of that, uh, that dock where it changes from riprap to that metal corrugated bulkhead, I need you to look there. And he pulls in, and I had seen a huge largemouth. I'm like, it's not there now, but I bet it comes back again, <laughs> like the river smallmouth running laps. That that fish came back to the spot, and he's like, "How big do you think?" I'm like, "It's at least six. 
and it comes back and he uh he's like eventually he sees it move in and he says some expletive and holy whatever that's (laughs) way bigger than six jeff and i'm like i knew it was big i'm like but you went right by there and he's like that fish wasn't there i'm like man i moved in that area and i was like 15 20 feet from that fish and it didn't move and and it started clicking there is, is it some, because it don't doesn't sit down the water as far as like what what do you think? I think that the acoustics of hull slap on an inflatable kayak make it more stealthy. Not only with it when you don't crunch into or bump into things and it makes a big boom, or not only that that your seat movement goes creak and 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 transmits noise. I think there's something with the hull slap of an inflatable kayak that is more stealthy than a rotor molded boat, certainly way more stealthy than an aluminum John boat. Is well, it's cool. definitely, it. De- you can tell it's just quieter in the yeah. river. Like when I've using that, um, that Hobie that I have and the, the river at is it, it does slide through the river easier. It, and it also, I was going to ask you one of the things that I noticed when you're, going upstream through fast water there's a way less drag because so, you're, you're way up higher one of the first ones that uh that trey from innovative sportsman the first i guess he, i think he has like five different prototypes of the osprey over the last year and a half and um i was in one with in and had my buddy jed who the, who, who wrote me into the tournament thing he gets in it i'm like and he wasn't to the point where he was ready to get a motor. He's got a he's got a torpedo now, but it took him a while to come around to it. Um, <laughs> but I was like, just paddle it, just paddle it. And that was the first thing he said. He's like, dude, you can attain up through rapids paddling that you can't in a rotomold boat. Like you can yep. paddle up through the amount of current. He's like, and when you cross that current line where you, you're in you're in the eddy. And there's a current seam and you're moving across and usually you cross it and it pushes on your bow and it pushes you downstream. You have to do a couple sweep strokes to push, to angle back up into it, to ferry correctly. He's like, you don't have to do any of that. He's like, I tried to do that expecting to be pushed downstream. And all of a sudden I'm jumping up into the next pool. I'm like, yep. It's yeah, it it does. It's like this because it doesn't have that keel that sits down the water. It it like, it just almost like sits on top of the current. It does. Um, so it'll grab you some. Like I do, if you're getting real fast stuff, it will grab you, but it's not so much that you can't overcome it with a, a so pretty you, gentle you, paddle stroke. You couple that, that sits on top of the water and advances upstream so much easier with a three horsepower electric outboard that normally can push a, a rotomold boat six and a half. And, and it's not that I'm getting that much more speed out of the inflatables. I'm getting six, eight, I think I've touched seven mile an hour with, with the, with the Osprey. Um, it, it's that you would, att- you attain, you can use the motor to shoot up through rapids that, that normally you'd, you couldn't paddle for sure, but you, you're also, otherwise you're just dragging it up the bank or, or, or getting to the ledge and dragging it over, doing something that you're getting out. You just keep going. So shallow yeah. draft, stealth, and the ability to 
um, to advance upstream. You know, yeah, it's pretty alone. Yeah, and the the other um, aspect that is like the more practical advantages is that transporting it is like, I mean, like if you're if you fish alone a lot, I fish I fish by myself a lot, um, especially yeah. in a tournament. I do not like being with someone else. Like I I like my own thing. Um, like it, I mean that Hobie, I can, I can check it on a plane. Like I could, I could take it, you know, like I, I, we did a vacation in Belize a few years ago for our anniversary. And I remember being on the, the, one of the islands out there and I'm like, man, how cool would it be to get a boat here? And I was like, like a kayak. So I could fish while I'm here. And like, I had to take a guide out. I'm like, there's no way to do it. And then now I'm like, shoot, I could have taken a freaking inflatable kayak. I got a buddy who it's uh, Dave Inscore who Dave, he's someone I knew from fishing the electric only reservoirs here in Maryland for, you know, I've known him for years, but he got into the kayak fishing thing and he's, he's been big in recent years in the snakehead, but also the, the, the really good redfish and speckled trout bite on the lower Chesapeake. Um, but I know that routinely in the winters, in January, February, he flies down to Florida with his I-11 and, and goes kayak fishing, you know, with with the I-11, the Hobie I-11 as a checked bag. And yeah. the ability to do that is is pretty cool. But here's the thing, though, that drives me nuts. The only story that inflatable kayaks have told for forever is, oh, look, you can pack it up in a backpack and here I am tromping through the woods and then I get to this lake that no one ever fishes and here I am pumping it up and I'm like I don't want to sit there and pump it up I want the advantages of shallow draft I'm going to leave it inflated stealth and and yeah is it more lightweight to drag through the woods absolutely um all of that has been missed by the inflatable kayak manufacturers who who've had these products there and just not gone anywhere. And I think people are figuring it out and, I, and I'm pushing it out there. I mean, with, with that inflatable yeah. kind of playlist and how much, how much content I push out there to say, check these out. They're, they're, they yeah, got a really I, unique set of um, it, characteristics yeah. that allow you to explore places that nobody else is getting to. Well, and I, I said, uh, you know, like when I was, I was ca- talking about the kind of my first, like, kayak experience with the Hobie and I was like you know I've I've been kayak fishing for about a decade now about 12 years however long it's been and I've had you know 20 different boats or whatever way less than you I'm sure (laughs) but uh you know I I was like my first trip out on that thing I was like you know kayak fishing I always tell people who are getting into it and they're like real gung-ho I'm like I temper their expectation and I, I tell them like, look, fishing out of a kayak on the river is one of the most single frustrating things you can do before you get good at it. Like it is like hair pullingly like frustrating. Like you're going to be cussing and throwing things. You're probably not going to catch very many fish. Like it's going to be really bad. But once you kind of get the hang of it, you know, you learn to overcome those frustrating uh, aspects of it. And I'm like, I got out on that Hobie, that inflatable. And I was like, about 80% of things that piss me off every time I'm in a kayak, like it eliminates it. (laughs) I'm like, it's, it's, it's like almost like made me mad that I hadn't tried an inflatable before then. 
And I, and cause I had been thinking about it for like two or three years. I'm like, man. And you know, I finally, I was on the wilderness systems team. I still am an ambassador, but the, they redid the, the national team and I'm sure. not on there. Like, so I don't feel as much allegiance to like only paddle their stuff. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go buy Hobie. So I went to my local dealer and he gave me a deal on it to do a review on the podcast. And I'm like, dude, this thing is it. I mean, it's unbelievable. And the, uh, the Hobie drive, I feel like has something to do with it too. Uh, because I do think that it's a pretty crazy efficient propulsion yeah. method. The, the Mirage um, drive is, is, is special. It just, yeah, it, it's cool. Um, but that those two things combined, I'm like, man, if you fish rivers and you're like really into kayak fishing, you should at least give a, an inflatable a chance because I think you get out in one time and then you're going to be like, oh, okay, I see. Like it's a, I say it's a go-kart on the river. I mean, yeah. it, it's like a go-kart compared to a Cadillac. I mean, you can just zip around in that thing. You can... You know, they're so much more responsive to, you know, the rudder on them because the rudder is the only thing really below the surface of the water. Your turning radius and stuff is so much more responsive than like a rotomolded kayak. So um, I will, crazy. will comment on um, the one possible downside of an inflatable kayak, and that is the wind will get mm-hmm. you more in an inflatable kayak that being said if you have different things to combat the wind and honestly when the wind is pushing me and all i have is my paddle it's pretty easy for me to use the paddle to stay put because because just like we talked about going across the you know the current line you don't have to work as hard to to get back up into that and you know so it's easy to hold in place but you because you do sit on top of the current on top of the you know the water uh you get you get pushed along easier by wind the mm-hmm. anchoring and i use an anchor i use a de bomb anchor with a he's a stern or bow anchor i have one of each josh and okay. the key is to have to have um it accessible you have a knife on your on your pfd and it's accessible if you have to cut the line that it's right next to your seat. So I can cut the one for the rear on my right, on the front on on my left. And it's, you know, it's just critical to be able to say, abort, give it up. I, River, you can have the anchor if you're in that situation. Honestly, if you use an anchor enough, you're eventually going to get into that situation where you just learned, oh, I just, I crossed the line. I, I put it in the wrong Oh, yeah. And you got to be able to cut that line and say, yeah, I can buy another $30 anchor. That's fine. Um, in fact, I have two sitting in the back of my truck. And when I was doing the tournaments more regularly, I would, I would, if they were river tournaments, I'd have another anchor in the hull of the kayak. So if I had to cut loose, I could restring it and grab the one out of the front of the hull of it and, and put it on in any case. So, the design of it though there there are inflatable kayaks that are that are lower profile that basically have a flat almost like a stand-up paddleboard base and that's really what the i11 is it's what the innovative sportsman osprey 1436 that one's a beast though 14 feet long and 36 inches wide a lot of people think that's too much boat no that enormous footprint 
means you go shallower in that boat than one that's yeah. an 11 foot and narrower. The smaller yeah. the footprint, the shallower you go. But the other part of that is that the that, that 14 footer, people are relating it to a, the last time they were in a 14 foot rotomolded boat, which is difficult to maneuver in a river. It's a lot. Oh yeah, it's river. almost impossible. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I did it with the Wilderness Systems Attack 140 for years. I had to be yeah. very deliberate with with you know really powerful sweep and reverse sweep paddle strokes to to be able to to you know to handle it and i could do it but what i will tell you is that the the, the 14 foot inflatable kayak is going to turn like a 10 or 11 foot rotomolded boat so yeah in in your 11 foot Hobie, I don't know. What does it turn like? A six foot road? Oh. <laughs> like it's just, Dude, it I mean, you can, you can turn three sixties in it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's yeah. a different animal cause it sits on top of the water, but yeah, the it's definitely bigger, cool. I'm at, the bigger, the footprint though, the shallower you go. Yeah. That makes sense. It's like you're, you're more surface area. That's, you know, keeping you up in the water. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm excited to see kind of where that goes. Um, you know, I, I, I noticed the innovative sportsman, um, you know, that guy's doing, doing those. It's, 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 it's curious to see how little of purpose built fishing inflatables are out there though. I mean, you know, Hobie's that, that I love and I have is it's, it's a wreck boat that you can rig for fishing. You know, it, it's not really a, a, it's well thought out, but you can tell it's just like, it's not really made to fish and that's where wreck kayaks were 20 years ago. You know, right. there a bunch of wreck boats there. People so, were kind of. So my first fishing kayak was, <laughs> it was, this was late nineties. Uh, I bought an, an old town loon one thirty eight, and I went to sit with, inside. I'm sure. Yeah. I went to, it was a galleons which became <laughs> Dick's yeah. it became Dick's ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I bought a tight, tight lock corporation, um, rod holder and stuck it like in the front, right in the center in front of the, the cockpit that I was sitting down. <laughs> I had the exact same thing. <laughs> that yeah. was it. And, and yeah. we're, we're at that stage with inflatable kayaks that like you're, your option for getting a rod holder that stays on that is, and, it, and it's a little bit more <laughs> refined than the tight lock corporation, uh, you know, rod holder that, that honestly, I only ever see them on people that, that, that do pontoon boats to go catfishing in anymore. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Like, they, won't you. they have them on yeah. every single rail they could possibly have. Yeah. Uh, but no, if you go to yak attack makes the, um, the switch pad, switch pad. and you buy yeah. the HH 66 from NRS and you glue it onto the hull and then, and then you can put the, the lock and load base and the Omega pro and, and, and then you, you put two of them together side by side, which is that first video on, um, on the inflatable kayak fishing playlist on, on the, my YouTube channel. And you, you make a bridge across and then all of a sudden you have 16 inches of track to put like a couple rod holders, a transducer, 
you know, mount a depth finder. I mean, whatever you, that, and that's, that's how I started. And really when, when Trey saw train from innovative sportsman saw it, he was like, we can clean that up, man. Like we can do better. I'm like, well, I was going to order, you know, I was going to get one custom anyways. And I actually ordered the first Osprey, if, if you want to say that, but I ordered one, you know, from a manufacturer and I'm like, I just want one because I can't get anyone else that I've talked to. Like I've talked with NRS and I've talked with, with Jackson. I actually talked with Wildy because they own Boardworks. I'm like, you guys could do this. I'm trying to get it. I said the same thing, dude. I went to them and said, here's a, and Seagull makes a lot of good ones. Um, They have a lot of different ones, but they're, they're kind of higher profile. They have a fish shop, which is a lower profile, um, which, which is a good option. But I was saying we put the track all over it and we've crossed over the biggest hurdle that you have with inflatable kayaks, which is rigability. And that's what yep. Ray has done where he's like, I'm, I'm going to put track on the whole thing. We can do it with four switch pads. I'm like, can you do five? Cause I need one on the, the bow for my, <laughs> for my anchor to drive. He's like, yeah, whatever. And you know, I ordered that first one and he was like, can, can you get more? I'm like, yeah, I mean, you got to go through the whole coast guard, get certification and, and whatever he's running with all that now. So is he making the actual inflatables in house then? No, no. Buying them overseas. There's no one in the United States or Canada. There might be some factories in Mexico. The the, the inflatable itself is from China. That's that's where yeah, that's what I've seen. There's Uh, a couple, and and there's companies that you you can order order them from in the U.S., but they're just importing them from China. I think right. there are some manufacturing plants for like stand up paddle boards and, and stuff like that in Vietnam. But outside of that, it's, it's China, Mexico. There's some manufacturer of inflatables, but most of it's China. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. That that's what like those drift boats we have. They're basically a, you know, an inflatable whitewater raft with a, they have an aluminum, uh, basically frame, on top of them that you strap onto the the um yeah with with d-rings right yeah with d-rings that are all around the boat and it actually works great it has a big platform on the back where you can put coolers so that's where trey was like you know it'll be a blended um it'll be a blended product which is is most products sold in the u.s where some parts are made you know overseas and some parts are here i think he's working with a domestic manufacturer of the track. Um, I think, I don't know where he's, he's getting the seat. Uh, and then a lot of the, the parts to, to put it together, Yak Attack, which is Farmville, Virginia. So, you know, as much as possible, he's, you know, he's either making the parts himself or having a, a local, he's outsourcing some of like the seat bases and stuff from, from a local well, he's a welder himself, but he's in order to to bring production up to what it needs to be. He'll he'll have somebody else local do it. But he's trying to get as much of it, you know, outside of the the hull itself manufactured here in the U.S. and and it's That's not cool. it's not just an ethic things or a, or a go USA. It's a it's a hey, what's the future hold? Like 
if, mm-hmm. if, if you can drive up to New Jersey and pick up whatever you need or drive down to Virginia, you know, you, you, your supply chain lines are shorter and then you're yeah. not as, as vulnerable. Anyways, that's a different discussion. All yeah. Day. I'll have to, I'll have to get in touch with him because that it's, I'm really interested in, he's, in inflatable. So he's got 20 of them in, but he, but they're not ready. <laughs> And it's the track that's holding it up, but he's close. So, and, and what I've, you know, I've been in one that's not a top loading track and that's the big thing that he wants to, to, to get past and, and to make sure that it's all top loading track, which is a yak attack patent, which he will license and pay yak attack for the privilege of using their patented design, um, you know, per foot or whatever it is. Um, which he has, you know, that, that agreement is, is in the works, but um, they're not ready yet. He's got 20 of them in that he's just chomping at the bit to, you know, to, to put them together. So what I've told people have asked me, cause I'm using one that's prototypey and I'll be at ICAST next week with one that we just put together that instead of using the actual top loading track, I think he milled regular track to make it top loading. Um, and just so we can, you know, I'm like, I, I want one to show off at ICAST. Um, you know, once he gets all that in place, but I, what I've been telling people is, uh, just reach out to him. Cause he's got a, he's got a running list of people that say, yeah, I want one when they're ready. I want it. And yeah, then, that's, that's really cool, man. I, I'm excited to see where that goes you know, in the next 10 years, five years or so. So especially a river guys, I think Lake fishermen, um, I'm not saying that you can't use it. You obviously use it on a lake, but I, I think you're, you're not, you, here's your benefits are lessened with it on a lake with big water is, um, you're going to have a wet butt. (laughs) You, Mm -hmm. You just are. And, uh, and I, I'm good with that. I got good NRS bibs and, and I can, or, or if I'm going to be wet, I'm going to be wet. But if, if I, if it's cold and I'm on a lake and, and the big waves that I'm kind of spearing through or washing through, um, I can, I can deal with that. But the flip side of that, and, and this is something that I actually heard, um, Eric Jackson talking about with his, his carbon fiber kayak, the, the apex, apex tier. Uh, which is another, you know, it's a carbon fiber kayak, super lightweight, just like an inflatable. And what he'd said, you know, the first tournament he fished was the KBF national championship on Gunnersville. He's like, I was able to get to places that people in roto molded boats wish they could get to. And it's the same thing. He's like, I have such incredibly shallow draft that these huge matted flats that have an opening at the back that are loaded with fish that those guys can see me back there catching fish. I paddled right over it because you sit on top of the surface. It's easier to get over that. Whereas the rotomolded boat, they draft between five and nine inches. If you look at the waterline of the average rotomolded kayak, the, the waterline is between five and nine inches. I've even, I've done a survey on kayak fishing surveys on Facebook and asked people to measure the mud line on the rotomolded and it's between five <laughs> and nine, right? 
Yeah, you've done you've done a lot of those. You have a you actually have a kayak fishing survey page, from what I remember. Yeah, so. and it's I mean it's open source. You know, anyone can put a poll up that they want. If it's if you're posting, you know, links to your YouTube video, I'll delete it. If you're if you're selling something, I'll delete it. But if you want to put a poll up on kayak fishing surveys, go for it. It's uh, it's <laughs> it's kind of fun to get it questions answered. But whatever it's between five and nine inches is the average rotomolded molded kayak. Uh, how much you need to get the average plastic boat through, you know, yeah. apex tier or with an inflatable, you need far less. And yeah, it's that, that it's applies definitely. to matted grass, the same way it applies to fishing rivers, the same way it applies to my snakehead water on, on, you know, on Sunday with, um, with Juan Chacon, who's, who was happy. Happy because he yeah. caught, you know, 12 and 12 pound plus snakehead in a place that other people cannot get to. That's cool, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm interested to see where they go. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's been cool. Um, you know, kind of watching you over the years too, Jeff, you've, you've definitely uh, made a huge impact on the sport. I will tell you that I'm sure I'm not the first person to say that. Um, it's a, uh, it's cool to, to one see you make a career out of it because that's that's everybody's dream right to do something that's they're interested in and every day you can wake up and actually like think your job's fun so my job is fun but it's um it it is um it's it's uh full throttle I've, I've yeah. not taken a vacation and, and, and people are like, Oh, poor you, you get to fish for a living. You didn't take a vacation. I have not had <laughs> off this year. And, and I miss, I honestly miss a lot that happens with, with raising two boys that are 14 and 16. I'm going to miss it again because <clears throat> I'm going straight from, from my cast in Orlando to going up to um, Ontario to teach an install because I was going to push it later because, but something else came up that I need to be at Torquedo headquarters the week after. And I have to fit in time to be home for my wife's birthday. I mean, it's there. I'm in a hotel room bed or sleeping in my truck more than I'm in my own bed. I will say that. Yeah, that's, that's rough, man. Uh, but I've, you know, at least you're enjoying, you know, the, the, the kind of the aspects of it. It's cool. Because, you know, you could tell, like, similar. we have similar kind of uh, wavelengths, I think, with that stuff. And I could tell for a while just watching you from afar, like, he's really trying to, like, do something, like, you know, for a living in this. You know, you had the bait company and, and you know, the guide service and that sort of thing. And it's tough, man. I, I was told a long time ago by um, Eric Jackson, actually, is the one. I emailed him, you know, 10 years ago about it and and a couple guys that do they're pro pro like glass boat fishermen and you know they told me like it's tough making a living in the fishing industry because there is a recreational aspect to it and you know the pay is like i do medical sales for a living and like nobody's interested in that you know that's not like something you wake up in the weekends you're like ah, i want to go look at some medical devices you know so right. i think the rec rec industry I think they know they don't have to pay as well because the jobs are cool. Right. Um, it's kind of hard to find a, you know, a good job that, you know, you can build a career off of. 
um, that's why, you know, I, my thing is I start my own stuff, you know, that's, uh, yep. uh, you know, kind of the way that I went, but yeah, it's cool, man. It's, it's neat. It's finally, uh, uh, it's cool to have you on the podcast. We've been talking about it forever and, um, you know, we, we miss each other in person a few times. I'm sure we'll cross paths here eventually. Um, uh, maybe even get to fish together. So I'll just, just carry an extra inflatable for me and we'll, uh, We'll cool. hit it up whenever we end up. If you find yourself in Indiana, though, don't leave with that. Yeah, I, I pass through it on the way to um, to Chicago a couple times a year. So, yeah. Are, are you for, are you? I'm in Indianapolis. North. Okay, you're you're pretty much in the middle. Yep. I mean, you, any t- anybody that goes through to Chicago has got to pretty much come through Indy because it's where all the interstates cross. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I live like 15 minutes from downtown, so I'm like right here. Um, but yeah, man, if you ever find yourself here, I have jet boat, drift boats, kayaks, whatever, and we'll we'll go out and show you a good time on Sugar Creek or wherever, cool. um, whatever's whatever's fishing well at the time. I uh, yeah, man. Uh, and then uh, if you want to go ahead and just go over your social media, your YouTube channel, so all of our audience can go subscribe and all that stuff. Yeah. I'll give you a chance to plug that. So. Yeah. I mean, Jeff, uh, on Facebook, I'm Jeff little, but there's also the little stuff on Facebook that, um, is linked to the Instagram account, which is Jeff little kayak fishing. Um, and then the biggest thing is, you know, that you're going to get the most benefit from, and that's, that's the YouTube channel and it's the little stuff. If you if you go to YouTube and you just type in the search, like I've I've tagged out the little stuff on every video, uh, so you it'll it'll come up. Um, it's not the little yeah. things; it's the little stuff because it is the little <laughs> stuff that makes the difference whether you're fishing or catching. And that's what I try to drill down to is all those little details, you know. Of well, you just got to watch them. I, I want to make you a better angler, and this is this is the first step is you, you learning some of the mechanics and reasons why certain things work out there with, with regard to presentation, with regard to rigging boats, with regard to, you know, so many different aspects of, of fishing for so many different species. I mean, I, I do cover smallmouth. Smallmouth is my biggest playlist, but I got largemouth. I got tidal largemouth. I got striped bass. I got walleye. I got, offshore kayak fishing i've got you know redfish and speckled trout and everything i mean i got all i mean because i travel all over the place um but the smallmouth is the is the biggest playlist and is uh the biggest you know part of of my heart as an angler i'm, yeah. I'm happiest on a river catching smallmouth yeah that's good to hear that you because i've you know done some traveling over the last few years caught figured out how to catch you know, redfish on my own. And that's pretty freaking cool. It is. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. freaking awesome. It actually reminds me of smallmouth a lot. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cool fish, but, um, yeah, man, I, I will say this all test to our audience. Like if you, if you aren't familiar with Jeff, like he, he's like, um, very, 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 uh, informative content. So, it's not the clickbaity type of entertainment. Like it's going to make you laugh, which, you know, I'm sure there's 
you know, some comedic relief in some of them, but like, it's really based around like increasing your knowledge as an angler. And I know we talked about, you know, instinct and time in the water. And that is far and away the best way to become a better angler is just to get out there and fish. But I will say once you have that kind of, you're building that as an angler, um, sometimes you get stuck in your ways and you do things a certain way over and over again. And for me, a lot of the stuff that I watch with you, it gives me new kind of uh, uh, branches off my foundation a little bit. So it gives me something that like, Ooh, there's something I haven't tried before. The next time I'm in this situation, I'm going to try this and see how it works. And it gives you, and a lot of times I'll do what I see and I can't duplicate it and I forget about it. But then you'll have that time where you're out and you're like, I'm going to try this. I, you know, just, I'm going to try it and see if it works. And you catch fish on it and then boom, you added another kind of tool to your tool belt that you can, you know, kind of take with you. And I think we're all somewhat limited as anglers, how many tools we can carry. Uh, but you always want to constantly be looking at your tools and seeing if there are other things that you might be able to replace and upgrade. And I think that's where a lot of those channels for me, a lot of the video and, and the, the content that I've seen of yours is just gives you a lot, a lot of ideas um, about stuff you can do. And um, it's, it's really good stuff. So uh, yeah. Thank, words. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Jeff. Uh, like I said, uh, um, check him out on social, check out his YouTube channel. He just hit a milestone on subscribers, which is cool. It's always a good feeling. So um, go and hit the subscribe button. If you have three YouTube accounts, Go and subscribe on all three of them. Pad those stats for Jeff. And uh, yeah, so every every guest we have on, Jeff, at the end, we we say free the fighter. So give me a free the fighter. Free the fighter. Free the fighter, baby. See you.